Welcome to the Modern Marrow Men podcast with Tom Hicks and John DeVito. Modern Marrow Men is a podcast on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We're hosting a weekly conversation on the law and the gospel so that church leaders and Christian lay people will rightly divide the word of truth. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing well, brother. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, let's uh, return to what we discussed in the last episode, the distinction or the relationship between the law and the gospel. And, and as we consider the relationship first, we are talking about, about that distinction, that the law is opposed to the gospel. And we, we were speaking of the law as covenant and the gospel, strictly speaking, uh, using the language that we've developed here over our podcast so far. Uh, but then our confession, uh, the Second London Confession of Faith, uh, also speaks of how the law sweetly complies with the gospel. And so there's another sense in which the law and the gospel aren't opposed to each other. Uh, so how, how would you explain that, uh, that way of thinking about the relationship between the law and gospel, especially in a way that won't conflict with what we've already seen right. from, from Scripture and, and, and through our own uh, tra- the Reformed tradition? Yeah, there are many ways that the law and the gospel agree with each other. And when we're consider when we were considering the differences, though, between law and gospel, we said we we're talking about the difference between the law as a covenant of works and the gospel as a covenant of redemption. But when we talk about uh, how the law and the gospel sweetly comply, we're really talking about all of it, the mm-hmm. agreement among you know all the covenants, how they all fit together and cooperate as a whole. And so it's it's you know it's the Law is a covenant of works. It's the gospel is a covenant of redemption. It's the gospel is a covenant of grace. The law is a standard. All the aspects of everything we've discussed are together in this, how they agree, how all, the law and the gospel agree. But in short, to summarize it all, the law as a covenant of works drives the sinner out of himself to seek redemption through the gospel as a covenant of redemption in Jesus. And, and when the Spirit unites him to Christ in the covenant of grace— The promises of the gospel point the believer to the law as the standard or rule of his conduct in life for a a life of love. Uh, The law as a covenant drives a sinner to Christ for his justification. Then Christ points the believing sinner back to the law as a rule of conduct in his sanctification. And so that's how they agree in in very broad summary strokes, but I'll break it down into some points. Uh, first, uh, both the law and the gospel as a covenant, uh, both the law and the gospel as a covenant of grace issue commands. So the law commands us to love God and love men, right? Mm-hmm. Gospel, largely speaking, uh, in the covenant of grace also commands us to love God and love men. But under the gospel, God writes these commands on our hearts on the basis of his free and gracious promise of life. And so the, the gospel largely issues the exact same commands as the law, as a covenant of works, in terms of the moral law that's there, and, uh, and also the law as a standard. The moral law is the same through all covenants. And in that sense, the law and the gospel agree. Here's another way of thinking of it. Uh, the, the moral law of the covenant of works is the very same moral law that Christ fulfilled in the covenant of redemption. And is the very same moral law that the Spirit writes on our hearts in the new covenant of grace. 
And so the law and the gospel agree and that the law cuts through all the covenants. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's the first point that I would make. The second is that the law and the gospel agree when it comes to eternal condemnation. Mm. And, and here's here's what I mean by that. The law threatens eternal condemnation for our sin, and then it drives us to the gospel where Christ experiences the condemnation that we deserve and cancels our guilt. And so in this way, the law and the gospel work together. The law shows us our sin and our need of a Savior, and the gospel reveals a Savior who promises to redeem us from the curses of the law. And so you see there's agreement there. There's a a co-working of law and gospel in that way. A third place where we can see the unity of the law and the gospel is on the cross, right? Mm -hmm. On the gospel, agree on the cross. The cross shows us the terrible consequences of the law. You know, this, I think this is important to talk to people about that. It's not just that your sin you know, the wages of your sin is your death, which is true, that your mm-hmm. sin means you deserve to go to hell, which is true. But also sin, the sins of every tribe and tongue, the sins of the world are put upon Jesus, and it costs the Son of God his very life. That's uh, that's the horror, the terror of the law, uh, the great weight and the terrible consequences of the law. But also the same cross where we see Jesus dying, paying the penalty of the law, shows us the great grace of the gospel. That Christ died to forgive our sins. He embraced the wrath of God for for our sins against God's law in order to reconcile us to a holy God, to earn life and resurrection for his beloved people. And so there at the cross, law and gospel are in perfect unity in the same act. That's where they're all joined together. Um, it's been said before that in the gospel, uh, the the wisdom of God found a way for the love of God to save sinners from the wrath of God, all the while upholding the justice of God. Mm. And so law and gospel are coming together in the cross. They kiss, you know, justice and grace kiss at the cross. And so those are some ways that I would consider thinking about the unity or the the way that the law and the gospel comply. Amen. It's such a uh, wonderful way of, of recognizing these. You, uh, you know, there's that, uh, I'm trying to think of the exact words of, of that, that, well, I'm trying to think of the way to say it, but, you know, the uh, Ralph Erskine uh, was famously known for a number of things. Of course, he was a marrow man, uh, but he had that poetic, refrain, I guess I'll call it, a rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw, but when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Amen. Right? And uh, there's that's been adapted in, in, in many different ways, that, that way of thinking, and John Bunyan and Spurgeon and Beveridge and, and others have versions of, of that kind of quote, but again, it shows the importance of recognizing the relationship here between the law and the gospel. Yeah, the gospel enables you to keep the law, though not yeah. perfectly. Right. You know, more and more through your sanctification, and then finally fully transforms you into the image of Jesus on the last day. And so they're friends. Law and gospel are not enemies. They're both expressions of of the, the love of God. They're both expressions of the holiness of God. They're both 
expressions um, of the grace of God. The law itself is a gift. Yeah, and and you know this is really important because for I, I notice some Christians out of a, a humility uh, and a recognition of their remaining sinfulness. Uh, almost entirely see themselves as that undeserving worm uh, as Christians hmm. that, that, to, that it's, it's hmm. almost as if nothing changes when they come to Christ, right? Like they're, they're, uh, they're totally depraved before they're saved and they're totally depraved after they're saved, but that's yeah. not at all what salvation no. is. No, I mean, I, no, once we're saved, you know, God looks at us as redeemed sinners so yeah. he still sees our sin and yes. he grieves over it because our sin is hurting us and it's damaging our communion with him. But he 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 treats us like we're sons, justified mm-hmm. sons. He doesn't guilt us or shame us. And so there's that level. But then there's also uh, that he gives us his spirit and we're not actually totally depraved worms anymore. Mm-hmm. We have a new nature that is able more and more to keep the law of God, never perfectly but more and more, though we have remaining sin, to be conformed to the image of Jesus and finally conformed to his image on the last day. Right. And, and so there's this, I mean, uh, we've, we've mentioned before Titus 2, right? But how the grace of God uh, trains us. Uh, there's this transforming power that we receive through uh, grace in, in the Holy Spirit, which is, working in us to um, bring this change, this um, purification process uh, in more and more in our lives. And, and that's just as much a part of the gospel as our forgiveness of sin and our uh, imputed righteousness. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so we, we don't want to truncate the gospel or, or, minimize all that is taking place in our lives through Christ's work. Uh, but, but distinguish as we need to and, and differentiate, but yet to rejoice in uh, the thoroughness and completeness of God's work of salvation uh, in our lives through the work of Amen. Christ. Amen. Amen. So then if, if we, if thinking at both about the, how the law is opposed to the gospel, as well as, how the law sweetly complies with the gospel. Uh, here we are, two pastors. We're on uh, conducting this podcast uh, for pastors, for Christian leaders, for interested uh, lay people. Uh, but uh, in what ways have then? Let's get practical, right? Uh, we, we're spending a lot of time distinguishing and talking and being real uh, careful as as we need to be. But at the end of the day, here we are seeking to minister these truths to God's people. And, uh, you know, God's people aren't reading uh, e- Edward Fisher or uh, John Cahoon, or and they're, they're not uh, thinking of these in, in necessarily in these carefully systematized ways. Uh, but, but how does this bear fruit then uh, in your ministry as a uh, pastor? And, and how do you apply yeah. these truths then you know, through the ministry? Yeah, well, I've, John Newton wrote this. He said, clearly to understand the distinction, connection, and harmony between law and the gospel and their mutual subserviency 
To illustrate and establish each other is a singular privilege and a happy means of preserving the soul from being entangled by errors on the hand or the left. So the way it serves as a pastor is it makes sure that you're saying everything in the proper order, Hmm. that you're preaching in, in a holistic way, that your sermons, that every sermon delivers the whole counsel of God in some way. So if you're thinking about it pastorally, think first in terms of preaching, this would apply in counseling as well. But you look at like Paul's letters. Every one of Paul's letters was meant to be read before the whole church in a single sitting. And what does he do in every one of his letters? He preaches the whole council, talks about indicatives and imperatives, law and gospel, all of it's together as a unified whole, every part in its right place. The same as the book of Hebrews. It's the only full sermon that we have in the Bible. Uh, that, you know, and, and what does Hebrews do? Well, it's centered on Jesus and it preaches law and gospel. It has the threats of the law in there and along with the promises of the gospel. It even contrasts law and gospel in Hebrews 12. It talks about, you know, you've not come to Mount Sinai, but at Mount Zion, you know, and, and so law gospel is running all through Hebrews and it's it's a whole. So I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say is what the law and the gospel paradigm does for us is as ministers of the gospel, is it makes sure that we're speaking in a way that's consistent with the Bible as a whole when we preach. We're preaching the whole counsel of God before God's people. Uh, Charles Bridges has a wonderful book, which we've already mentioned in a previous episode of the Christian ministry. And he has a whole chapter in that book discussing law and gospel mm-hmm. and pastoral ministry. So if, if anyone listening hasn't read that, I highly recommend getting that book, reading the whole book, but especially take a look at that chapter on the law and the gospel. Uh, But basically pastors have to be very careful not to try to motivate God's people to obey Christ from the condemnations of the law. Mm. The, The threats and the curses of the law can never lead us to love and obey Jesus properly. Right. On the other hand, pastors must preach the law to point sinners to Christ and to guide their faithful, loving obedience to him. And so when when pastors preach the threats of the law, they must then preach Christ as the one who satisfies the curse of the law and calls people to rest in him. And and then on the basis of Christ and his imputed righteousness, pastors should call God's people to obey his commandments out of love and gratitude for all he has done for the joy of knowing him more. So so here's what I mean. The order of preaching is not this. It's not preaching the threats of the law and then preaching obedience to the law. Hmm. Rather, the order is preaching the threats of the law, then preaching Christ who redeems us from those threats. Then we preach obedience to Christ personally out of love for him and for more joy in him and to love others. Hmm. So that's the right understanding with Jesus there at the center of it all. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, Let's say a pastor is preaching on prayer. And he points out that prayerless people are proud and self-sufficient. And he goes on to say, if you don't want to be proud and self-sufficient, then you need to start praying. You have the Holy Spirit, which means you have all the resources you need to pray. God commands you to pray. And if you love him, you'll pray. So pray. (laughs) But if that's all he does, he's failed to preach the law and the gospel properly. Mm. And in fact, if people try to pray on the basis of that kind of preaching, their prayers will be sinful. Hmm. They'll be trying to pray to overcome their sin as though their own obedience can overcome their sin. 
They'll be praying just because it's their duty, not out of love to Jesus and joy in him. This kind of legal preaching actually creates lawlessness because the law requires love and joy in Christ, but the law cannot produce love and joy in Christ. See, so faithful preaching in light of the law and the gospel is more like this. Prayerlessness is manifest manifests a proud and self-sufficient spirit. Prayerlessness is a terrible sin that deserves condemnation and hell. Your prayerlessness shows a lack of love for God and it deserves God's wrath. But Christ died for prayerless people. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when the disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane? They fell asleep when they were supposed to be praying. But what did Jesus do? He went and he certainly corrected them. He rebuked them for their prayerlessness. But then the next day he got up on the cross and he died for their prayerlessness. Mm-hmm. And his blood washes their guilt and their shame of prayerlessness. And not only that, but during his life on earth and right there in the garden while they were sleeping, he was praying. His prayers were perfect in their place. Mm-hmm. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. He always lives to make intercession for his people. He's still praying for us. And doesn't that make you want to pray? The, the Savior has loved you so much. He prays for you. He, praised in your, he prayed in your stead. He died for your prayerlessness. He's for you. He's not against you. Oh, prayerless believer, he welcomes you to himself with your sins and all. He delights in your prayers, and he purifies all the imperfections of your prayers by his blood. Won't you go to him in prayer? The more you pray, the more you'll know Jesus. The more you pray, you'll know and enjoy this good Christ who saved you from your sins. Your obedience in prayer doesn't earn you anything, doesn't make you closer to God in terms of your formal objective relationship. Jesus earned it all. Rather, you should pray because he loves you so much. You should pray as a way of expressing your love for him and pray to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ for the joy of knowing him more. So that's why that is why it's important to grasp this relationship between law and gospel and pastoral ministry and preaching. If we fail to get this right, we'll lead people to be antinomians on the one hand or legalists on the other, which really legalism is just another form of antinomianism. Right. You know, I'm thinking of, uh, especially when we come to, if, if we divide the, we, we come to a passage of scripture, we're preaching a passage of scripture and that passage is law right? Uh, do this. Um, and we don't think through this recognition of how this law connects and relates to Christ and, and the gospel, uh, then it can be preached uh, legally. Uh, you know, do this and live. Do this for God to accept you. Do this to be a good Christian or, you know, whatever it means. We minimize uh, the gospel. We, we uh, are communicating to our people not to uh, to place their eyes on Jesus, uh, but 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 on themselves, and so there you have that uh, problem as well. Uh, but then you know you can have these uh, promises that are uh, communicated through uh, Scripture, and if we come to those what glorious promise passages, uh, but then we uh, try to emphasize the importance of say repentance or of the Christian needing to live out these truths, uh, and we can then undermine uh, the uh, power of that gospel as, again, we're turning away from Christ and turning that back on 
themselves. And, and so a right understanding can bring them together in a way that will uh, rightly divide the word of truth and, and help us to communicate it in a way that will be a blessing and a benefit uh, right. for the salvation of sinners and edification of the saints. Yeah. And a lot of this comes down to your understanding of hermeneutics as well. Yeah. So, you know, if you have, if you're, let's say you're preaching uh, the text that says pray without ceasing, you know, mm-hmm. back to the example I was using and a preacher says, well, all that other stuff you said isn't in that text, but the pastor, the preacher needs to interpret individual texts in a wide enough context that he can see both law and gospel because that command pray without ceasing comes in the context of the whole letter of Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. And then that comes in the context of the whole Bible. And so, mm-hmm. yes, preach the particular, the grammatical, the historical meaning of the text, but then go out further and preach the theological meaning as well, which includes the whole Bible with Christ at the theological center of Scripture. And right. so so part of this is a hermeneutical problem that pastors don't understand, that that they, they should not limit themselves to the mere text that they're preaching. They have to preach that text in light of the whole counsel of God. And I've even found among some Reformed believers a mistaken thought that the goal of preaching is for me to leave convicted of my sin. Yeah, uh, as though that's all. Yeah, as if like I should be feeling by the end of my sermon, the whole goal is for that I'm supposed to get out of here and beat myself up over how miserable I am and um, you know, convicted of what's wrong in my life. And, and certainly there's, again, the law convicts, that's <laughs> yeah. true, but, but um, th- there should be a, an, a, that our a- preaching ministry should be one of upholding the glories of Christ Amen. for us to be in awe of uh, his grace and rejoicing mm-hmm. in our salvation and uh, thankful, having thankful hearts uh, uh, as his people. And, right. and so it's a whole different, again, we may have the same theological formal Form. agreement, right. right? We may hold the same confessions of faith or what have you, but our entire ministry is different, which goes back to that marrow controversy mm-hmm. that, that, that took place. That's right. It was the Pharisees who tied up heavy burdens. Mm. They're the ones who did that. But true preaching leads to what John says, where he says, your commandments are not burdensome. First John chapter five. Mm-hmm. How are the commands not burdensome? Well, only if there's no curse in them. Right. Only if Christ is satisfied, the curse of the law can, po- can, is it even possible for the commandments not to be a burden? Plus they're written on your hearts by the Holy spirit. And so, yeah, how could, why would the goal ever to be make someone walk away, leave burdened? So when, what then would you say about, uh, you've mentioned before Hebrews and other passages of Scripture. I mean, there are warnings given, right? Clearly, uh, in Hebrews, well-known uh, passages of warning uh, Christians. Um, yeah. Revelation, you and I are both preaching through Revelation. You know, there's these calls to remain faithful and to overcome, right? Um, and, and and these warnings of uh, not. So so if if... This is who we are in Christ. There's therefore now no condemnation uh, for us in Christ. Uh, how do we rightly preach these warnings that, that are given uh, in Scripture? Yeah, well, I mean, the book of Hebrews is written to, is a sermon, and it's written to and preached to the visible church. 
And the visible church de facto is a mixed body of believers and unbelievers. And so when we preach as preachers, we preach not just the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. We don't just preach the gospel. We preach the law as a covenant. We have to preach the threats and the thunderings of the law. That's what we do. I believe that's what the warnings are in the in the warnings of Hebrews. Those are curses of the law, warning that visible church that if any of you walks away from your profession of faith in Christ, you'll go to hell. That's what it's saying to them. Uh, so we need to preach that as pastors that way, but it's wrong to just leave it there. And, and Hebrews didn't just leave it there. The warnings are there, but then they're closely followed up with sweet promises of Jesus mm. and precious you know, holding out of the fullness of Christ's redemption. You know, there's no more glorious passage on that in the Bible than Hebrews 9, about his effectual redemption and mediation, and, you know, that he fully accomplishes our salvation. So we preach it all. That's what I'm saying. So, but but Christians who believe in Christ shouldn't walk away burdened. Unbelievers ought to, but at the most, all an unbeliever will do is walk away with a legal guilt, never never with, a, you know, a gospel conviction. How, would, how do you see the warnings then functioning in a, say, a true believer? Uh, they hear these warnings. Is there a way in which God is working through those warnings as well? well I mean, sure. If you're, if you're drifting from Christ, you begin to, I mean, you don't have a ground of assurance. Hmm. If you're growing dull of hearing and you're not trusting and leaning into Christ, can you truly be a believer? Yes. I mean, David was. King David, even through all of his backslidings and horrible commissions of sin, uh, that can happen in a true believer in the church. And so you should hear the warnings if you're drifting from Jesus, if you're growing dull of hearing, you don't have a, a you don't have a good confession anymore. And the warning is for you. And uh, but if you hear that warning as a believer, what it'll do is it'll convict your conscience uh, of the holiness of God, the threat of uh, of his curse, which which then drives you back to Jesus again. Mm-hmm. in his time, of course, but you're set back upon Christ. And if you mm-hmm. respond as a believer correctly to that warning, uh, then then you're centered back on Jesus again for repentance mm-hmm. and, and to grow in holiness. So the warning mm-hmm. threats even work for believers who are right. drifting. Yeah, absolutely. And so again, we see the, the beauty of God's revelation in Scripture in speaking to all, uh, whether unbeliever, uh, believer, or uh, those who are struggling as believers, or false professors, <laughs> those who claim to be believers and are not, right? The scripture is is for all kinds of uh, image bearers, and because we all need Christ, and and so directs us to Him. That's great. Well, thank you again, Tom, and thank you everyone for listening to the Modern Merriman podcast on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you'd like to know more about CBTS, please visit us online at cbtseminary.org. That's cbtseminary.org. Well, you know, there we're getting more in the practical ministry side, which I think will be helpful for people as well. We're not just eggheads um, talking theology, but applying it. So, 